This is The Bittersweet Life. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. I'm Katie Sewell. I've been in the radio business for nearly 20 years, mostly working for public radio in the United States. In 2013, I quit my stable job and I moved to Rome for just a year. That's where this podcast begins. And if you're new, don't be afraid to start at the beginning. I'd hate for you to miss out on the adventure. That adventure might inspire you to do something crazy, like quit your stable job and move to Rome for just one year. And my co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer and author of Midnight in the Piazza. And she's also an expat who moved to Rome over a decade ago with the determination to stay whatever it took. She's also my childhood friend. I met her on the school bus in the sixth grade. I hope you like the show, and if you do, tell a friend and take the time to write us a review. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Once again this week, I am not with Tiffany. I am with Amy Herman, author of Visual Intelligence. We uh, were in the Whitney Museum talking about how to see things better. And after we got kicked out of there, we decided to do this week's episode. <laughs> which puts us on the streets of New York, which is a place where you should be observant of your surroundings. I mean, you should always be observant of your surroundings, right? Absolutely. So many times nowadays, given our world as we travel around and Instagram ourselves everywhere, we're actually looking at our phones. So we're going to talk about how to actually see the world, make good decisions within it, and uh, hopefully make your travels a little more interesting too. So. I'm glad you brought that up because, yes, we're standing downtown. We're in what used to be called the Meatpacking District. It's still called that, although there's very little meatpacking done, but there is behind me. Um, we're looking at a company. It says Lewis Zucker and Company, and they're distributors of pork and beef. And when I first moved to the city 23 years ago, all these streets smelled of blood. You could still smell the blood, and now it's these high-end stores, and it's luxury goods. But if you look carefully, it's so easy to overlook this and not realize that there's still a meat packer in the meat packing district. The other thing I want to tell you, what you said is so true about looking at our phones all the time. I broke up with my phone about a week ago, <laughs> and I made, I did two things. Because I live in a visual world, I said, I'm only going to use my phone for when I need it, to text, to check my email, and when I need to look something up. And, and not to call anybody. And well, when I need to call people, but I resist the urge. Did you notice when we walked out of the museum, I did not take my phone out, which I normally would have done. Because in my old mind, I'd think, well, what did I miss while I was in the museum? Whatever it is can wait. And at the same time, I bought a copy of Middle March. I decided. <laughs> I just bought a copy of Middle March. Did you really? I just bought it when I broke up with my phone. And I'm reading a few pages every day. And I'm trying to see if breaking up with my phone and diving into a book that needs a lot of concentration will go well together. And I have to say, I've been feeling much better. My screen time is down. But I still have my phone. <laughs> well, I know. And it's, I, I was just walking down the street, probably on my way to meet you. And I noticed how many people were walking and even crossing the street while reading their phones. Which And not only is it dangerous, it's just distracting in a way that it shouldn't be. I mean, we almost bump into each other and it's rude. And one of the things in breaking up with my phone is when I have lunches or dinners with friends or clients, I don't even keep the phone on the table anymore. 
and people know where I am. And if they need to reach me, they'll reach me. So I thought we'd look around this neighborhood a yeah, little bit yeah. without our phones. Well, let's get past this truck before it pulls out. Yeah. <laughs> in the meatpacking store. In the meatpacking store. The other thing with the phones that I find so fascinating and why I love your book about trying to get us to be more aware of what is actually happening around us mm -hmm. is how have we collectively decided that what's actually happening in the world is not interesting? That's right. I mean, we are bombarded with information. We're absolutely bombarded with information. And one of the reasons I like the title visual intelligence is it means how do we distill out the information that we need and that we want instead of taking it all in? I mean, not that everybody's watching cat videos all the time, but they're out there and they're, they're, the time sucks are innumerable. You know, you could just waste your whole day on your phone watching things that don't matter. So one of my questions is what matters? What should we be looking at? And one of the things I want to show you is this sign. Yes, it's a good sign. <laughs> this is Hector's Diner. And Hector's Diner has, uh, for those of you listening, it's this tiny little sign. Maybe Katie will take a picture of it or I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. Yes. It's this tiny little sign that says Cafe Diner. It's the plainest sign in the whole world. And it's a diner that has survived from the time this was the meatpacking district. And if you look around, it's all fancy stores and luxury items and Hector's Diner has survived. And people go out of their way to come here. It's a greasy spoon. But I just wanted to point out that you have fancy bars and the, the standard hotel is a block away and that's one of the places to be. And here's Hector's Diner that has survived. So I still have faith in what's old is new and that if you just look up and look around you'll see things that other people miss yeah are there certain things that you tend to notice more sometimes i notice things that nobody else will see and sometimes i can't believe what i've missed it really does go both ways and about six months ago a, a woman got on the bus and i was sitting we have single seats and she sat down in front of me and you know how sometimes there's someone who's so beautiful, everyone's looking at them. They just capture the attention of everyone around them. So I was looking at this woman and she had all this perfume on, like she just, her personality and her dress and her size just filled the bus. And as she sat down behind me, I realized not only did she miss a line of foundation on her face, it was a man. Oh. And I just was, oh, I was just floored that the way she dressed was so incredible and because I noticed one line of foundation and I saw her beard it was a man does that change my life no but it makes me appreciate the subtleties in the world that we live in and things that I look at so sometimes I miss the big things and sometimes I notice the little things that really just make my day <laughs> I've never been a person who's super in love with my phone but I have been trying more to do things like it was a 48 minute ride in from the airport in just stop and go traffic. Common sense would say, read your phone. Right. But instead, I looked out the window the entire time. I do the same thing because my phone's always gonna be there. We can rationalize and say, well, I'm catching up on the news or I'm texting friends. But one of the things I noticed, I went to China for the first time in September for work. And I was on a similar ride. It was about 45 minutes from the airport into downtown Shanghai and I said don't waste this you know and what struck me and it's been one of my I think we're gonna go this way okay. it's been one of my lasting impressions of Shanghai is as we drove in whether it was luxury buildings or dilapidated buildings or housing projects everyone hangs their laundry out to dry and I kept thinking are there no dryers in Shanghai 
but it's just something that the culture does. Everyone hangs their laundry out. Doesn't It has nothing to do with your economic circumstances or whether you have a washer or dryer. And I was so, I felt like a voyeur. I was dri driving in from the airport and I saw everyone's underwear. <laughs> and it just struck me. And I thought to myself, had I been on the phone, I would have not had that indelible impression that would have been lost. And it's just so easy and so tempting. And we know there's something addictive in the phone. Yeah, yeah. Unlike you, I am visual, but I'm also very audio focused. So like, for instance, right now we're in the wind, which for these yeah. people listening is not a great thing. Sorry. I'm trying to <clears throat> micro appropriately. But I mean, do you find that in working so hard to heighten your visual senses so that you're noticing more in the world around you are your other senses becoming heightened too do you smell more do you hear more or does the visual take over more i think that when you heighten your awareness in one aspect it's going to naturally heighten others but i also find i'm human we'll go this way okay. i'm human and when i'm tired all my senses go down people ask me you know can you turn this off do you look at everybody and everything no i don't do this 24 7 but I probably am more, I don't even want to use the word vigilant, I'm more aware than the average person because it's not only what I do for a living, but I just enjoy noticing things that other people miss. And it turns out that's a value to some professions. I would have never thought of that. And it's a real joy for me to take the power of art, as we just did at the Whitney, and looked at all these works of art and discuss them. Sometimes we didn't even talk about the artist's name. Yeah. We talked about what we were seeing and how we felt about it, and we brought it to our own world. Now that's a noise of a bus as we're passing. Yeah. It's a New York City sound, and if I weren't walking with you, I wouldn't even hear it. That's what I mean. I've learned to tune things out. We can walk this direction, because that's the direction you have to go in. So, so I, there are some things that I tune out, but I will say this also. I was in this city on 9-11, and I will never, ever, ever forget the sounds. The visuals were, compelling and awful, but the sounds of the city were eerie and overwhelming. Tell us what was going on. Well, uh, I remember going to work that morning, like it was a regular day, and I was on the bus, and one of my colleagues was on the bus as well, and she said to me, a helicopter just hit the World Trade Center, and I said, don't be ridiculous, helicopters do not run into the World Trade Center. So we decided to get off the bus and walk the rest of the way to work because it was a gorgeous, blue September, blue sky, September day. It was just a sparkling day. And I'll never forget looking down the, the street and you could see these plumes of black smoke. And normally I wouldn't think anything of it. I'd think, okay, there's a fire. But combine the idea that a helicopter hit the World Trade Center and the deafening sound of sirens like I've never heard before. It was as if every siren in the city was going and nobody knew what to do. And as I tell my classes now, the need for a contingency plan in our lives, it's imperative because there was no contingency plan on 9-11. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to go. We didn't know who to ask because nothing like that had ever happened. And my auditory sense is now heightened. When I hear sirens past a certain level, I get worried. Uh -huh. Up to a certain threshold, it's just New York City. But if it goes above that because of 9-11, I really think something's wrong. Did that experience, was that the beginning of your heightened awareness of what's going on? The fact that you were not, nobody was prepared for anything, a disaster on that scale. I think professionally it was. Personally, 
Uh, I've been studying art for so many years that it was always part of the way I saw the world. I believe that studying art history lays the foundation for how I see the world, big picture, small details. But after something like 9-11, my business expanded in a way, sadly, because other people realized the value of not only having the contingency plan, but the necessity of being able to communicate in exigent circumstances. And so I always say this city has never been the same since 9-11, for better and for worse. People came together. It's a safer city, but we're all much more aware of the capacity of what humanity can do. Do you ever wonder what that day or 9-11, that whole experience would have been like if we all had smartphones at that point? Mm. Funny you say that because I got a phone after 9-11. I never had one and I was lost. I couldn't reach anybody. And my computer at work, the servers went under the World Trade Center. So we had no computer access. I couldn't reach any of my loved ones. Actually, we're gonna go this way because I'm gonna take you towards Fifth Avenue. Okay. I'll get on your other side. So I think servers would have gone out. I think they would have been overwhelmed, but I was at a real loss. My mother was in the city. I couldn't reach my husband at the time. I couldn't reach anybody. And we all just ended up walking to wherever we had to go. And you saw people hugging in the streets because they found each other. I, I don't know how smartphones would have changed things. I think we probably would have all had maybe more information, but that was so unprecedented. That day changed the whole world. And where we are right now, if we walk to the island right here, we're crossing 8th Avenue now. And if you look straight downtown, smoke was a little east of here, but you just would have seen it. It was just giant plumes of smoke anywhere downtown because we're on 14th Street. And the whole city was just watching in horror and listening. But the other, the other strange thing is that the streets were eerily quiet because nobody knew what to say. And the subways had stopped. There was no rumbling of the sidewalks. There was no, you couldn't leave the city. They closed bridges and tunnels. And it was just this eerie, just the biggest city in the world just stopped. So I'll never forget it. I think about it every day. I really do. In a good way or a bad way? Both. I haunting way? In a haunting way, yes. And because I fly so much, I think about when I cross that threshold from the jetway onto the plane and I think, well, what if this is the plane that goes down? Yeah, yeah. Sorry about the noise here. Oh, this is New York. Get used to it. And then when my son was young and he would go off to school in the morning, he was not born on 9-11. He wasn't alive yet. But when I used to say goodbye to him in the morning, I'd say to myself, what if it happens today? How am I going to find him? How's he going to get home? And I can't believe that all these years later, I still think about it, but it's one of the reasons I reached out to the NYPD with my program. I have a tremendous respect and admiration for what they do. They're my favorite client in the whole world. And uh, I work with the counterterrorism and homicide and domestic violence units to try to help them be better at what they do in my home city. Call it selfish. They're my hometown police department and after 9-11, and now I'm working, uh, reaching out to emergency services, the fire department and EMS to bring the program to them as well. Do they ever take you to, to a site on a case? Is your visual intelligence like the detective's special weapon? <laughs> <laughs> it's the hidden weapon. Well, interestingly, uh, they'll come up to me after I teach a course and say, can I show you photographs? Can we revisit this crime scene? 
because I'm fresh eyes, I'm not a cop. And when you and I were talking about bias in the museum, one of the things the cops readily tell me is they suffer from confirmation bias. And it's, it's not intentional and it's not malfeasance, but if you have a seasoned detective in the car and they get a call about, you know, a shooting, homicide, and they get a description over the radio, you're an auditory person, they, they hear the description and from the time they hear the description until they get to the crime scene, they've mentally decided what's happened. And when they get to the crime scene, they look for evidence that confirms what they think happened. And that's dangerous, that's confirmation bias. You're looking for evidence to confirm what you think happened, and in the process, I teach them, you're gonna miss what you really need. So, it's a problem. Yeah, because what they need to do, in, from your perspective, is they need to go in to where, whatever the scene is and just look at what's going on. Exactly. We'll wait till this fire truck <laughs> Number three, they're some of the best. <laughs> That's how we know we're not in Italy anymore either, by the way. That's right. It's the American siren. Uh, um, but yes, it's the idea of bias that we talked about in looking at a painting. You know, if we say, oh, this is a hopper or this is a Vermeer and we decide whether we like it or not, I can't afford to have them do that at crime scenes because if you're dealing with a serial perpetrator or you're dealing with dangerous substances, you need to have all your lenses as broad as possible to take in all that evidence. So it's what we work on, and I can't believe how effective art is as a tool to get them to rethink their work. Yeah, so how did you happen upon that? I'm sure I've asked you that before. <laughs> well, it's such a strange combination that you would study fine art to become a better cop. It just It's not something that people no. would put together. It's not a natural marriage of, of vocations. But I started the program by teaching medical students how to enhance their observations of their patients by learning to look at works of art. And that was a very organic sort of collaboration because people are always injecting the humanities into medicine. And one night I was at dinner and I was telling friends of mine that these medical students had vision that was so myopic, like they just, they knew nothing about the world, everything was medical and scientific. These medical students had such narrow vision and they really didn't know anything about the broader world. And a friend of mine said at dinner, why are you just doing this for medical students? Why aren't you doing this for people, other people who need good observation skills? I said, well, who should I be doing it for? He said, cops, you know, like it was the most natural thing in the world. And that was Saturday night and Monday morning, I called the New York City Police Department. I just cold called them uh -huh. and I said, you know, hi, I'm Amy Herman. I'm the head of education at the Frick Collection, and I have a great idea. And I could picture the guy at the switchboard like, who is this? <laughs> and after transferring me seven times, I got to the right person. Wow. Wow. And so for the people listening, I, I know I have one cop in the audience. Uh, <laughs> but what if, you're not a, what if you're not a police officer? What I've learned in all the years of doing this is that Good visual acuity is necessary for anybody, whether you are a student or you are a parent or you are a nurse or a cop or whatever you do, because we all need to be aware of our surroundings. And so I've tailored the training. One of the things I love about it is working with so many different people. I train Navy SEALs, I train shock and trauma nurses. I work with social workers because everybody needs to be aware. And I feel like we're, I'm hoping, my fingers are crossed that I'm going to bring this training to the new freshman congressman because who needs to think more about their communication and their observations and 
how it can resonate with all the stakeholders in our government. So uh, the more I think about it, the more I look at art, and the more I talk with people, I realize these are skills that everybody needs. Yeah. And what do you make of the kind of observation that frequent travelers make or in this kind of Instagram, Facebook era? I mean, they're basically looking for a good picture, right? I mean, that's kind yes. of what all of us with social media are looking for, the good picture. But you know what strikes me? I, I agree with you. The quest is let's get that Instagrammable image but then it all goes away. Then it's, it's like the ultimate in ephemera. And I realize that's the world we live in. We, world, we live in this ephemeral world. You want to think that images are indelible. They stay with us forever. They don't. <laughs> so my feeling is make the most impact that you can while you have the opportunity. So yes, are we looking for the best picture? Sure we are, the big picture and the small details. But it's not just seeing, it's how we communicate what we see. Now where are we? Now we've crossed neighborhoods. We left the meatpacking district. Yes. We walked through Chelsea and now we're coming up to the West Village. And if you look down again, for our listeners, we're looking right at the Freedom Tower. Which is where, where what? Where, that's where the World Trade Center was. And if you can picture that one big tower that we're looking at was the two tallest towers in the world. When that happened, think of the millions of people that could see firsthand what was happening. Mm -hmm. Really compelling. Yeah. Did you ever consider moving away after that happened? Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of friends that lived downtown and left and people said I would you know never stay in New York City and for those of us that stayed it's just solidified our love and commitment to the city. I just I'm home and as much as I travel it never gets old when wheels come down at LaGuardia. It just never gets old and Pilot says, you know, welcome to New York, and I'm home. I think I love it so much because I'm not here all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's a very loud place to live. It is. Some people think it's an assault on the senses. I just say, talk louder. You know, it's, it's uh, as people say to me, you can get a grilled cheese at 2 o'clock in the morning in New York. Yes, you can. I'm usually sleeping at 2 a.m., but I can do things and eat things that I can't anyplace else. And it's just one of those places, and I'm fine with people who say, I can't live here. But I tell people, put it on your bucket list. It's some place that everybody should see and experience. And, but we do mundane things here too. You know, we do our dry cleaning, we do our grocery shopping, but I find it, it's a never ending source of inspiration for me and the work that I do. So uh, another question that comes to my mind, when you're in any big city, in New York, Hong Kong, any place where there's just so much going on. I mean, I don't know how to even estimate how many people are, we could see right now if we were going to try to count or estimate. Some people think that that kind of stimuli is what makes your observational ability shut down. Like there's too much coming at you. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, that's where the practice of visual intelligence comes in. It's about thinking about what you want to see and what you need to see and how do you filter out the noise. And when we were at the museum, we were talking about, I talk a lot about noise in paintings because noise isn't just what we hear, it's what we see. And how do we filter out the noise in our lives? And I think if we can filter out the noise in our relationships, in our jobs, and in our lives, I think it adds to the quality of life. And I remember when I was in Shanghai, I kept thinking, there are 8 million people in New York City and there are 25 million people in Shanghai. I couldn't wrap my head around the idea of 25 million people. However, we all inhabit our communities. We all have our worlds. So it doesn't matter if I live in rural Wisconsin 
or I live in that, I live in that orange building straight down there, uh -huh. we still inhabit our worlds and we all need to be visually, and I should say sensory, we should have sensory awareness of wherever we are. In this landscape with all this stimuli, what would be important for me to be noticing right now? Well, we've passed a lot of different kinds of people as yeah. we've been walking on 14th Street. Because 14th, we've walked from very far west, and now we're about to cross to the east side of the city. And you notice our surroundings have changed, the kinds of stores have changed, and we've passed different groups of people. And I know each of these stores and organizations, but if you're new to a city, you need to know where you are. Not just physically, but you need to know your safety, you know when someone crazy is walking towards you, and also, at the same time, as if you have 10 pairs of eyes, to be looking at the architecture and looking at the weather and thinking, do I want a cup of coffee? All these things. But yes, New York gives us an opportunity to do that. And I'll tell you a quick story, if I can tell you a New York story. There's an optician on the corner here at Fifth Avenue and 14th Street. And we had a beloved nanny in our lives. She passed away in this past year, but she suffered a trauma and her son was killed and she, her, she was from Trinidad and she was taking the bus down Fifth Avenue and she found out on the bus that her son had been killed. So she came into this optician and two men on the bus saw that she was very upset and they walked her into this optician and they sat with her. And she called me and she told me what happened so I left work and I said to my colleagues, I'm not coming back, I have to go take care of my nanny. And I got to the optician and I didn't know what I was going to say to her. What do you say to someone who's just lost their child? Mm -hmm. So these two men, total strangers, stayed with my nanny. I walked into the optician's store and I got down on my knees and I just hugged Monica's legs and I just held her. I was on the ground and these two men pointed to me and said to Monica, do you know this woman? <laughs> I had just, because in this moment of humanity I just want to let her know that I was there and I just wanted to hold her and these two random New Yorkers are like who is this woman that just came in and every time I pass this optician I think about that moment that in this big city there was so much humanity strangers walked her here and kept her here until I came and then they were protective of her when I arrived like who is this woman on the floor hugging your legs and then I walked her home I lived two blocks away those are my buildings and she has no recollection she had no recollection of that walk home and I thought I could take care of her. And it just reminded me, in this big, cold, frenetic city, we have connections. And one of the things I like about art is it forges human connections. And I have the opportunity to make them all the time. And that's interesting, too, that, that this glasses store is just like any average store. But for you, it all, that's the other thing, too. It's not like you're visually seeing it. You overlay this memory on top of it. And that's another thing we're doing, right? It is. And in fact, I got my glasses here because <laughs> Because I, whenever I pass it, you know, it seems, as you said, it's, it's a very average Cohen's, op, you know, optician, but it's very special to me. And in a city, that's what I try to encourage people to do. Find special connections to people and places, because I think in the, at the end of the day, it just enriches our lives and it broadens our lenses. The more we see, I think the more we appreciate what we see in life. So to end... I guess you can give me advice, because I'm only in New York for like a day or two, but give advice to the people listening as well. If I was going to try to do anything to practice my visual intelligence. I'm tell you to look right, right away, because right that's Washington Square Park. There's the arch right uh -huh. there, and you can see it from this vantage point, and you can always judge by the lights how much time you have to get across. But I encourage people, look right and look left, because 
you see things in New York that other people just miss. You've already been to the Whitney, and we've looked at it, you know, with no real agenda. And when you're in a city like New York, there's no way you can see everything. So I tell people to walk, number one, because you see so much of a city. Yeah, the subway's great, but going underground, you're not going to see anything. I mean, you do see the world, but look up and around and take a walk if you can. You have pretty nice weather today. And pick two or three places that you really want to see and go to them. Don't try to do 10 things because you won't remember them. You know, cities are overwhelming. I often, like you, I go someplace and I'm there for a day or two, I have to teach, and I try to take in whatever I can. Yeah. And sometimes is it just as important to just take a walk and see what you see? Absolutely, and when I'm overwhelmed, I know this is gonna sound counterintuitive, but when I'm overwhelmed and I, I just don't know what to do, I walk to the Battery. I walk to Chinatown to clear my head. I have a cup of tea. Uh, usually a pastry is involved. And then I walk home. And in addition to breaking up with my phone, uh, I made a promise to myself to walk at least a mile a day in New York. And because some days I can't get to the gym, walking is great exercise. And it really clears your head in a way that going to a gym doesn't. And look at what we have to look at. If you're looking at my building straight ahead, there are four of them, and there are four identical towers. And that's been my home for a long time. And most people see it as, you know, big cold city towers. That's home to me. And uh, I love it because we live high up and we can see down into Union Square Park. And these are all my landmarks. So I encourage people, walk around the city, pick two or three important places, and then you go home with some very tangible things that you've seen. All right, and if I'm gonna work on my bias, what's one thing I can do to work on that besides get rid of my phone or my social media, which really doesn't help? I would start with problem solving. When you're faced with a problem that you have to solve, ask yourself objectively, what are the factors that are going into your problem solving? And start to recognize your own biases because it doesn't happen overnight. Say, you know what? I'm being mean to this person because I think they're X. Step back and look at it objectively. And it's a process. Nobody ever masters this, but I think if we start to become aware of the biases that affect our behavior, it will become automatic and say, you know what, I'm not being fair here or I'm not being objective. How do you recognize like when you're being biased though? How would you define that? Well, I'll bring it first full circle and say, we'll start in an art museum and see what catches your eye and what repels your eye and ask yourself, you know, why did I like this? Why did I not like that? But in a situation, in terms of situational awareness, if you feel unsafe in a situation, ask yourself, why do I feel unsafe here? What is it about my surroundings that makes me worried? And then you'll know if you're looking at biases. Is it the people? Is it the, the noise? Here, we can walk this way. And you start asking yourself questions and it comes back to what the exercises that I do in the art museum. Asking questions about what you see, asking questions about what you notice, and asking questions about the way you are reacting to what you see. And your biases will become pretty clear. And it's also good to talk to people about this. Talk to people you're close to and say, do you ever notice, do you think I'm biased about anything in particular? Uh -huh. And whether you agree with them or not, just listen to what they say. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for walking around the freezing cold streets of New York with me. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been great. And neither of us pulled out our phones. True. It's great. And I think that there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. You know, email's great. Social media is terrific. But there's no substitute for face-to-face -face conversation and just observing the world together.
thank you for having me. It's been so nice to reconnect. Yeah. And, uh, I hope we can keep doing this. <laughs> me too. All right. And until next time, from the streets of New York City, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing The Bittersweet Life on YouTube and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. <laughs>